Welcome to the CPA Success Podcast. I'm Jen Nicholson. And I'm Blair Cook. And today we are delighted to have Chantelle Bernier join us. Chantelle leads the Canadian privacy and cyber security practice of Denton's Canada LLP. And she began at Denton's back in 2014 after nearly six years of leading the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada as both the interim privacy commissioner and as the assistant commissioner. Prior to leading the OPC, Chantelle worked at senior levels of the Government of Canada, including an assistant deputy minister responsible for socioeconomic development at Aboriginal and Northern Affairs Canada, as assistant deputy minister responsible for community safety and partnerships at Public Safety Canada, and as director of operations for the Machinery of Government Secretariat of the Privy Council Office. Today, we are talking to Chantelle about privacy and the issues that surface with privacy related to artificial intelligence and privacy legislation. Let's get started. Welcome back to the CPA Success Podcast. I'm Jen Nicholson, and I'm very excited to be here with Chantelle Bernier, who leads the Canadian Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice at Denton's Canada LLP. Thanks so much for being here today. My pleasure. So you've had a really interesting career so far. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background and how it's evolved over time? Mm-hmm. Well, I really... Um, fundamentally, in the terms of what drew me to law school, a human rights lawyer. And that is how, throughout my career, I've always explored the areas of law that really did engage the discussion about uh, human rights. And that led me uh, to various positions at the Department of Justice until I was uh, promoted to the level of Assistant Deputy Minister. I was assigned to what was then Indian and Northern Affairs and then Public Safety Canada. At Public Safety Canada, where I spent six years, I really found myself at a a crucial point where privacy and other policy objectives converge, namely public safety converging with privacy concerns. And that is how the then uh, Privacy Commissioner of Canada approached me to be her assistant privacy commissioner. And I felt that it was jumping in, so to speak, uh, perhaps the most engaging public debate on human rights at this time, because I feel that of all human rights, the right to privacy is the one whose contours, whose definition is most being redefined through new risks and therefore new modalities of protection. So I spent six years leading the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada until I joined uh, Dentons to head the privacy and cybersecurity practice. Wow, that's very, very interesting and evolving. And it looks like you've seen all sides of privacy, I guess, from the public sector, from uh, Indian and Northern Affairs, which would have certainly many challenges uh, in, in different ways. So um, tell me a bit about how public safety and privacy intersect. So it is perhaps the most acute intersection because public safety naturally is uh, predicated upon personal information. So uh, the way that you would see it most tangibly in your life is taking 
a flight somewhere. Right. So there you are, put through security measures uh, that really you would not have imagined um, 25 years ago. Right, pre-9-11. Correct. Uh, so we are put through uh, a system whereby we actually put our toiletries for everyone to see, we remove our blazers, we remove our shoes, we walk through a metal detector. Belt. Sometimes I feel like and I'm you have to remove your belt. Correct, correct. And, and yeah. this expression, I feel like I'm taking almost half my clothes, <laughs> is truly indicative of the privacy encroachment that is taking on. But um, there is a proportionality between that encroachment and the public safety objectives that are pursued. And there has to be that proportionality. So privacy is respected as long as the personal information that is collected and used is collected and used in a, to an extent that corresponds to the necessity for public interest. Right, so very well-defined and protected usage. Correct, but also minimization of usage to that exact empirically justified purpose. So for example, the public safety measures that we are put through in an airport would be legitimate under human rights law in Canada, namely the Charter of Canadian Rights and Freedoms. It has to be empirically demonstrated to be necessary. So uh, there is obviously intelligence gathered. Why did we at some point um, come under the rule that we could not bring in liquids. Mm -hmm. It was because the UK authorities managed to discover a scheme whereby terrorists were planning to bring explosives in totally innocuous bottles of other liquids, commonly sold, uh, to actually make the planes explode. And uh, thankfully, that was foiled. However, it did raise the concern of the public safety authorities about liquids on planes, which is why then this measure that brings us to show what liquids we're bringing in. So you see that the encroachment to privacy is real. There is no question that when we go through the airline safety, public safety measures, we do suffer, if that's the right word, uh, a privacy encroachment. It is not a violation, however, because it is always proportionate to the public safety objective that is pursued and it is empirically verified. It would become a violation where uh, let's say the public safety threat that is at the root of the encroachment was no longer verified. Right. Then, because then it would no longer be 
proportionate. Do you see that uh, changing, the security rules changing? Do you think it's going to get more difficult going through an airport or perhaps not quite so much? I've actually noticed it seems to be not quite as strict as it used to be. I think that it is always, or, or I know because I have reviewed uh, privacy impact assessments from the public safety agencies in Canada, that it evolves according to the intelligence they receive. Right. So, and, and we should be thankful for that, is that we want them to protect us, and therefore we want them to keep up to date with what the threats really are. And we um, want them to take the measures that are proportionate to those threats, but we do not want to go in excess of what is justified in relation to those threats. So we will see it evolve. And I would hope that every time it does change, that they tell us why. Even within the bounds of the secrecy that they need to have to be effective, there is room for transparency. And they must be transparent to the maximum that is allowed without compromising the effectiveness of their operations. I think certainly people uh, have accepted that it's the way it is now. Certainly if you're going to travel, that there are certain guidelines and that's just the price you pay, of course, for our safety and it's well worth it. Correct. Um, however, we wouldn't want us to ever become complacent. The authorities will always have to justify why. Is it still necessary? Which is why when I was uh, leading the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, I did make recommendations to Parliament that there be annual reports of all the public safety agencies so that they do say, this is why. This is the type of intelligence we have. This is what is therefore dictating the public safety measures that uh, may encroach upon privacy that we impose. And again, I do... Uh, belief, and I'm not alone in that belief, that there is room for transparency without compromising the effectiveness of the operations. What is the mandate of the Office of the Privacy Commissioner? Certainly it's, we've heard of it, and it's it sounds very uh, mysterious, and, uh, but, but I don't know that it's clear that everyone really understands what the office is responsible for. So the office is responsible for applying two privacy legislations. One is the Privacy Act, which applies to all federal institutions, wherever they are. If it's a federal institution, whether it is in Manitoba or whether it is exercising in the Maritimes, in Nova Scotia, um, all federal institutions are subject to the Privacy Act. The second piece of legislation that the Office of the Privacy Commissioner is responsible for applying applies to the private sector, and that is the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act. And that applies to all federally regulated uh, companies across Canada. So for example, banks, banks or airlines, we were talking about okay, airline yes. safety, airlines are also federally regulated, therefore everywhere in Canada. Uh, they come under the jurisdiction of the Office of the Privacy Commissioner. Provincial companies um, will come under the, also under the jurisdiction of the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, except in three provinces that have adopted their own legislation, and that okay. is um, British Columbia, Alberta, and Quebec. 
But there's also yet another slice that comes out of the Office of the Privacy Commissioner's jurisdiction, and that's for health, um, personal health information, including pharmacies, therefore some private sector, comes under the provincial laws that have been adopted to uh, protect it. So, in general, the Office of the Privacy Commission of Canada is responsible for the respect of privacy of individuals in uh, regard to every federal public institution and most business in Canada. Wow, so it's very wide-reaching. It is. Yeah. It is. Mm -hmm. And very, uh, how is it monitored and enforced in ensuring that this privacy laws are um, actually being put into place the way that they're supposed to? So there are a few ways. Um, one is complaints. So anyone who is concerned uh, that his or her personal information was misused or collected excessively can go and file a complaint to the Office of the Privacy Commission of Canada and there will be an investigation. Whether it's against a federal um, public institution or whether it's against a uh, company. And the OPC will investigate. The OPC can also initiate an investigation when they suspect that there has been a breach of privacy law that they are responsible for enforcing. Another enforcement tool of the OPC is audits. So if they feel a company has um, really, they have strong suspicion that that company is violating the private sector legislation, they can audit it and make that audit public. For uh, public institutions, they don't even need to have that kind of suspicion. If they consider that a institution is high risk just because of the volume of personal information it deals with, the sensitivity of the personal information it deals with, they can audit it. So that's another enforcement tool. At the end of the investigation, there is a report and uh, the Privacy Commissioner can choose either to maintain the rule of confidentiality, which is the general rule, or make an exception to that rule, say because uh, the commissioner feels that it is in the public interest to make the investigation um, public, can name uh, the private company. Wow. Yeah, that is wow. That is yes. a very strong uh, power, much stronger than people would uh, think normally, but it does go to reputation, it goes to branding, and therefore it has some clout. With respect to public institutions, actually, the uh, Privacy Commissioner can name, which is natural because they are totally accountable to citizens, and does use that um, power by uh, annual reports. In fact, just last week, the Privacy Commissioner has issued his annual report where he does give a very effective and uh, illustrative picture of the state of privacy in Canada. And what were the results of that report? What is the state of privacy in Canada? Well, right he expresses a lot of concern. Uh, he speaks of unprecedented privacy risks and um, gives examples from both the, 
the private sector and the public sector, although I would say the private sector has um, raised uh, perhaps the most spectacular concerns because it's been in yes. the news so much. I mean, you've read the newspapers. Absolutely. But I think what we can't lose sight of is the convergence between private and public, which is what Edward Snowden revealed, really, right. that uh, there was a use of private sector compiled data by the public sector, which culminated in a privacy risk that uh, none of us had suspected until his revelations in 2013. Right. And he's still in hiding, is he not? He's, he's, he is. Uh, he's very active in the sense that he participates in conferences and he writes. And frankly, I find that his um, thoughts are highly relevant. And he is someone definitely that uh, remains a player. Yeah, wow. It's, it's quite an interesting world. And uh, at the why is it that the, the private sector is so at risk now? I can imagine it's due to our online world, the um, evolution of artificial intelligence. Can you talk a little bit about the, the liability issues, the legal landscape with mm. the development of artificial intelligence? Absolutely. So uh, artificial intelligence is unquestionably of great, great value. We're basically um, looking at three unprecedented intellectual products. The first one is the process of large, huge volumes of data in record time at a capacity that no human has. The second uh, benefit, let's say, is the complexity, the capacity to analyze very complex data elements and issue trends that we could never compile as accurately as a machine can. And the third uh, possible product is consistency. Because you remove from the analysis human fatigue or human mm -hmm. bias, you get consistent objective analytical products. Now that's the powerful. correct. Now that's the theory. It is, as you say, incredibly powerful, which makes it both incredibly useful and incredibly dangerous. Right. Any power can be used or misused. So let's take the last theoretical benefit that I've mentioned: consistency. Consistency because you remove human bias. Who trains the machines? Humans. Exactly. Exactly. So is it really without bias? Correct. Or is it in fact entrenching bias? Wow. So that the biases that the data training will be imbued with because it's a human training the machine that these correlations will actually work could mean that the machine who will not question it as biased, the machine does not think it computes, will mean that you will have as a result um, counterintuitive or actually totally inaccurate data. Um, I'll give you one example of um, a report I read very recently. So this was putting through 
AI, uh, the risk factors in a hospital. And uh, what caught the attention of the doctors was the fact that the machine was putting in high risk clients, patients that had pneumonia, and in low risk patients who had both asthma and pneumonia, which obviously was inaccurate. Yes, of course. And that was because there was one variable that the machine had not been trained to incorporate and had did not have, therefore, the capacity to think of by itself, which was that patients who have asthma and pneumonia get more intensive care than patients who only have pneumonia. Right, so they've been highlighted as requiring more care because of the existence, pre-existing condition of asthma. Correct. And the humans would put them in higher risk because of the two. But the machine put it in lower risk because the machine looked at survival data. Okay. And uh, therefore did not compute that the reason one got more higher survival rates than the other was not because it was lower risk, it was because it got better care. And therefore, there was a distortion in the analytics. No, they were not lower risk. They were higher risk. And so by putting them in a lower risk chain, was actually putting them at great risk because it was putting them, it was directing them towards lower care when in fact they needed more care. You see, so um, that is an issue. Um, I was struck last week to talk about the topicality of this issue. Last week, the Globe and Mail had two articles on September 26th, September 27th, about the same AI program. The idea of having AI to uh, predict analysis in the immigration and refugee program. The uh, Monk School of Global Affairs and the University of Toronto Law School did a report together on that. Very interesting report. And they, they really bring out the highlights you know, of uh, the privacy issues of AI. So this um, AI program would be used to help uh, the government assess in an applicant's risk factors, to assess fraudulent applications, to assess genuine or non-genuine marriages, and to assess also the claims of biological offsprings. Wow, so those are examples. Exactly, exactly. And that is why the report says this is really high risk. Is this really where you want to test AI first? Interestingly, they do not recommend that AI be dropped, even in relation to these issues. They just say, you need to proceed with great care. You need to put human oversight. Oh my goodness. Well, of course, you get the impact on people's lives uh, if they are somehow mischanneled in that kind of a, Correct. a study or Correct. analysis. Correct. So the privacy implications, um, let's look at the first objective, 
which was to assess a person's risk factors. Well, to my mind, as a privacy professional, my first question is, how? On the basis of what information? What are you going to gather about this individual to determine that? How broad are you going to go? Is that going to include surveying this person's digital footprint? If so, ooh, we're getting into really (laughs) private territory. The second objective, uh, which would be to um, examine fraudulent claims to detect them. Well, my question there is, well, according to what variables, according to what algorithms, and um, how are you going to be able to provide access to the individual should the individual want to contest that decision? that his or her claim was fraudulent. Are you going to be able to go back and unpack the reasoning for that decision right, when the, the reasoning... has just decided that they're a, a red light or a green light, for example. Because the reasoning belongs to an algorithm. Exactly. That could actually be so complex to actually be beyond human understanding and therefore the human can ex- can't explain. Oh what, how yes. the decision so you see so we have a trans challenges. we have an access and transparency issue as well oh, yes. so um i thought that that example really illustrated not that we shouldn't go towards ai ai is the way of the future but that we really do need to build all of the privacy protections that correspond to all of the privacy risks it uh, creates. Well, it's very, very complicated. So on that note, uh, something I think that's been brought in to help address this is GDPR, which we've certainly heard a lot about and has been brought into Europe. But what exactly is GDPR? So it's the General Data Protection Regulation. Europe, so we're talking about the European Union, did have a directive until it was replaced by the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, uh, that essentially guided all member states in their privacy legislation to protect privacy at a certain level, according to certain norms, which were spelt out in the directive. What the regulation does is, in fact, replace the directive not by a guideline so to speak, but by actual law applicable throughout the European Union, therefore abrogating the local laws for one privacy law throughout the European Union in the regulation. And in addition, therefore, to replacing and unifying European law on privacy, what it also does is modernize privacy law. And that is by responding to the current realities of online privacy It's very different than even 10 years ago, the environment that we're living in. You're quite right. Absolutely. Well, just for look at this. Our current Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, PIPEDA, we call it, in Canada, was adopted in 2000, came into force, 2001, Facebook 
did not exist right. when we created Optus. So there's been a sea change oh, that calls for some uh, regulatory transformations. So is GDPR coming to Canada? Or well, something similar to that? It only applies to European citizens, but it does apply extraterritorially in a sense that every Canadian business that has European customers or European business partners, they are subject oh, wow. to GDPR in a sense that um, as soon as they touch European data, they must treat it in accordance with GDPR. So in that sense, GDPR is in Canada in the sense that it does apply to every Canadian business that has activities either in Europe or with European customers. And what does it require? What, what are some of the actual concrete examples of GDPR? How what does a business have to do differently because of GDPR? So let me focus on the word differently because I would like to uh, make clear that a lot of the requirements under GDPR do exist under Canadian law. The example of transparency. GDPR says you will make clear to your users Why? how exactly what information you collect how do you use it? Why do you collect it and use it? Who do you share it with? That is in GDPR, and that is also in PIPEDA. So let's focus on what GDPR comes uh, to introduce that is new. Well, a business person will say to you, well, the first thing that catches their attention is the level of penalties. Unprecedented. Really? Unprecedented. A company that violates GDPR for a minor violation, such as failing to record its processing, its data processing activities exactly according to the criteria, that will be a, a penalty of up to 2% of their annual global revenue, oh my or 10 million euros, whichever is highest. So. That's a bite. Yes. For a major violation, for example, a privacy policy that says we shall not use your personal information, say, for analytics and to provide you ads that are personalized, and in fact, deceivingly doing so, that would bring a penalty of 4% of global annual revenues or a maximum of 20 million euros, whichever is highest. So this is what obviously has a lot of business alert. And they would say to you, well, that's definitely a change. Yes, the, for sure. I yeah, think. yeah. And how does, a, is there training on how to apply GDPR? I'm, I'm sure companies must not know how to implement this, this kind of uh, change of rules. So you can imagine there has been a, an extremely high level of activity in uh, the recent years. I mean, it came into force May 25th, 2018. So all of us privacy professionals have been incredibly busy I can imagine. preparing companies. Uh, what do I do? What do I, how do I comply? And so uh, essentially 
they have the companies have brought in experts that have told them how to comply I know that uh, I would say 85% of my practice in the last year has been bringing companies compliant with the GDPR and I my guess is that um, other colleagues in other law firms would tell you they're doing the same uh, thing. Oh, yes, ex exactly. So how do you, it's such a long question to answer. It's a long process. So my answer would be get an expert. Yes, and, exactly. um, and first of all, assess your need. And if you did, you do have to comply with GDPR, well then get, make sure that you are. make sure you get someone who knows how to do it. Absolutely. And there is some concern that, that GDPR is going to limit or uh, kill AI, it's a bit controversial. What are the issues there? Well, I did read recently one uh, law professor who was saying uh, anyone who believes that uh, GDPR and artificial intelligence are reconcilable is uh, fooling themselves. Um, I am more serene than uh, this uh, law professor. But I do agree that the business model has now of AI has now been put under quite a bit of scrutiny and restrictions. So, for example, the algorithms will have to be more transparent. The use of AI will have to be uh, announced. So companies will have to be transparent of the fact that they use AI. Uh, they will have to be transparent about what their algorithms are, subject, of course, subject to intellectual property protection. Right. And uh, they will not be able to use AI uh, without express consent for any data element that constitutes sensitive information. For example, health information. So any use of um, our fitness Yes. Trackers. I certainly heard there's a new, uh, I heard on the news a couple weeks ago about one of the large insurance companies wanting to offer discounts for their customers willing to wear uh, exactly. uh, an exercise tracker. Correct. And it has to be predicated upon express consent. It really does have to be predicated upon express consent. In the context of an insurance contract, it is viable. It's a business model that's viable because you do very expressly and, and um, deliberately seek insurance. So you can be told exactly what it's going to do. And they're going to say, if you want to wear a fitness tracker, we will give you a rebate. And you do have the time to actually discuss it. Oh, really? Well, how are you going to track it? How are you going to know, et cetera, et cetera? And you say, I like this because I'm actually pretty fit, and if you're, and I like the idea that you're going to keep me on my toes. So it, yeah, there can I like be that a win-win. Exactly. <laughs> so if there's a win-win, but from a privacy law point of view, there is informed consent, free informed consent, then that's fine. Where the use of that sensitive information in an AI model would be a violation of your privacy is where it was used without that express consent. Right. If it was ambient collection, for example, this is walking through a mall 
that picks up the email addresses, that picks up all of the ID devices. Um, as I experienced in Asia um, recently, so we're walking through public spaces and we're getting emails welcoming us on our iPhones. Really? And yes. And I thought, well, clearly privacy law is not the same in this country as it is oh, in Canada. Oh my goodness. Um, because it was just detected through beacons and sensors that my my device ID was was picked up. Uh, so that would not be allowed in uh, under GDPR or right. in Canada. I assume in Canada either. No. Hopefully not. No. So as CPAs, what is our role in privacy? So here we are at a CPA conference, and that's you know, our, typically our users. We want to know how does this apply to our roles and our, our, our jobs and our lives. So first of all, as uh, accountants or accounting professionals, you are entrusted with a lot of personal data. Absolutely. And you are entrusted with sensitive personal data. So that's your first engagement with privacy law. In relation to AI, it can provide huge benefits for you. It can help you, for example, determine trends, which is how you improve your decision advice um, by compiling and processing huge amounts of personal data. Yeah, it's incredibly useful, certainly when Correct. you look at uh, the auditing practices uh, of today compared to back when I was an articling student, we would um, randomly select through, through through pages of data what, what we were going to use as our samples, and now it's all computer generated with much higher um, accuracy, and the population that's analyzed is, is much more significant. Exactly. It will change the game. Correct. And so if we go back to the three big outputs of AI that, that I referred to a moment ago, so the first great output is that it can process volumes of data that humans simply cannot process. So that means for an accounting professional who wants to give really solid advice, therefore based on really solid uh, data, well, that means you can get that both more cheaply and more effectively because wow you can really uh, have a very wide database to ground your advice the second one i spoke about the complexity that ai is ca capable of mastering so the connecting the dots that will inform an accounting decision can be far broader um, and multiple in terms of the data elements it will base itself on than a human uh, decision. So again, that means probably far more cogent uh, decisions to advise business or, or shareholders. Consistency is another one, remember, that we, that the last one. Well, again, from an accountant's point of view, I can see that you would have a far more cogent decision from the fact that 
the data that is processed is objective. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, exactly. And is truly linked to a benchmark. So the uses are uh, very clear for accounting, but the risks are also very clear because you are advising on the basis of personal data. So I put myself in accountant's position where the client corporation, let's say, says, I really would like to see whether my pension plan is on solid grounds or whether I should reconsider it. Uh, in terms of age, eligibility, benefits, and so on. And so the process could certainly be put through an AI program where age would be thrown in, where the lifespan of the retirees would be put in, where the state of health of uh, the future retirees would be put in, etc., etc. So you see how we get close to home. Like we really, Absolutely. and that's where an accountant who would put that decision-making through AI needs to really think of the privacy measures to include. The privacy measures would include um, tools such as, first of all, making sure that the variables that would be introduced in the AI analysis would be very narrowly defined, really limited. Remember, we were talking about proportionality at the beginning. No more than what is truly relevant. And there are times when it's going to be obvious, like age, and there are times when it's going to be much more of a gray zone. For example, marital status. So how does marital status impact on intentions to retire or benefits? Interesting. So then You're making assumptions about what people's behaviors Correct. To be. Correct. And that's where you you really need that privacy discipline that keeps you focused on the personal data that is empirically, demonstrably needed to produce the data analysis that you're seeking. So it's really restricting it to knowing no more about the individual than you have the right to know because it is justified by the product you want to at the end. And that is beneficial to the individual because that's the other key equation is the balance between the rights of the individuals and the objectives of the company. It has to be fair. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I think we will we'll end our conversation, really highlighting the fact that uh, privacy is essential and that there's a, a tough balance between the rights of the individual and the rights of the organization. Thank you so much, Chantal. My pleasure.